Hey everybody, on our on our podcast coming up today, you'll notice that the sound quality isn't quite what we want it to be. Unfortunately, we had some uh, some uh, technical difficulties. It gets better towards the second half, so you might just be tempted to go to the second half, but I, I, I implore you not to do that. This guy is so interesting to us. We think you're going to love him. He, he's just a really talented, interesting guy, and... Um, uh, so, and also this episode, while me and Rob never recommend anybody go to our YouTube to watch the episodes <laughs> for the obvious reasons, um, this one, this one, I, I would, uh, you know, I recommend that you do watch this one on YouTube because the guy, uh, is woodworking and is, I just think it, it, it really makes for a good episode if you do that. Um, and finally, you'll notice towards the end of the podcast, I hardly talked at all, which it seems odd because I'm sitting right next to the guy, but what we recognize is if I didn't talk, his sound quality was better. So um, there you go. I really hope you listen to the episode. Uh, we're, we really want to support this guy, and uh, he was very cool. So please uh, stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On the Floor with Wayne and Rob. I'm Wayne Highlander, National Sales Manager for Bone Adhesives. And I'm Rob Johnson from Bona Training. How are we doing, Rob? I'm doing really good today. Good, yeah. How about you yourself? A, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm so excited about our show today, Rob. We have a guest with us today. And, um, you know, usually we have a, a hardwood floor, you know, a contractor or, or someone on the on the, the show. But today we have a, a woodworker. And all hardwood floor, floor guys are woodworkers at heart, right? I, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so and I put somebody floor. And this gentleman has done some floors, as a matter of fact. And I'm gonna that's I'm gonna, what I want to talk about. I want to hear about his floors. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna um introduce our guest today. His name is George Wurzel, and um he's a he's a, a very skilled woodworker and is a great variety of woodworking projects. He does millwork, cabinets, furniture, and more. And I've uh, done a famous, uh, did some work for a famous R&B singer. We'll talk about that a little bit. And he does very complex. I'm in, his, I'm in his shop, by the way, today. And I'm just like a little kid in a candy store. Uh, he has very uh, complex uh, uh, projects that he works on and precise pieces. And, uh, and uh, so um, uh, maybe you can uh, just introduce yourself a little bit, George, to the guests. Uh, George Wurzel, uh, living in the, the good life in Greenville, Tennessee. Um, native of Michigan, grew up in Michigan, worked in Michigan, uh, and then spent some time in North Carolina in the furniture business, and spent some time in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where it's good and cold, and then spent a little bit of time outside of uh, Napa, California, uh, working up in the mountains there, and then decided to retire, and this is my retirement job. So we're going to talk about his career, and um, I, I mentioned that. I'm in his shop now, and I've, I've, I invite everybody to go to his, uh, we'll talk about your contact information later, but um, I mentioned that about his woodworking, and it's it's just some phenomenal, really nice stuff, and uh, George is blind, and uh, I believe since the 20s. Since I started off with really, really bad eyes, and by the time I was in my 20s, it was all gone. It was all gone. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm amazed at some of your work and, and you, know, you also have had a fascinating life. I did some research on you, George. <laughs> uh, and uh, so again, I'd like our, our invite our listeners to, to check out his work. So, um, and I, as I, as I said, and we're, I want to talk about this later because I think it's so cool. You, you, 
for our listening audience, you may have seen George already. He's in a he was in a famous commercial that we'll talk about later. No, um, I want to talk about that now. I got to get no, that. Out you want to get that out of the way? Okay. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Come on, man. That George was that um was that a Super Bowl commercial? Started running on the Super Bowl. I mean, if you're gonna do if you're gonna do a national ad, you have to start it on the Super Bowl. Like, <laughs> that's what I. That's what, as soon as I was reading it, I said, "Geez, I, I remember that commercial. That was the Super Bowl commercial." And then, um, and I always and I always tell people, you know, if you're gonna be in a national ad of some sort, and and you want to move to a new town, it's the perfect time to do it. When I moved to here, moved to Greenville. Uh, it's a small town. It's only 15,000 people. So it's a little place. And I moved to town and the ad was running. So they, they did a little ditty in the newspaper about me moving in and they mentioned the ad. So then everybody in town knew who I was. I didn't have to even introduce myself. I mean, it was great. You go into place and they go, oh yeah, you're the Subaru guy. I mean, it was, it was so cool. I mean, and it was, I've never done anything like that before. I've been, I've done some documentary film work with some people uh, for, on a couple different projects. But um, if you would have told me that you could be in a single national ad of some sort and go anywhere in the United States and walk into you know, a restaurant or a store or walk through an airport and people come up to you and say, are you the guy in the super? I told you you were crazy. Nobody wow. pays attention to who's in ads, you know? And I, I, I do admit I'm a rather unique looking individual, you know? I, in the in the ad, I'm wearing bib overalls and a flannel shirt, and today I'm wearing bib overalls and just a t-shirt. But um, so it, it was my normal attire. So the same thing I've been wearing for the last you know 30 years of my life, and um, and I'm a you know a shaggy hippie kind of looking old hippie kind of guy. So you know it it was what they were looking for for the ad, the description for the, the call that went out to the agencies said they were looking for a blind gentleman between the ages of 55 and 75, somewhat uh, curmudgeonly and rusty. And I, I fit all of those categories. Check off all the boxes. Huh? I did. And wow. They called me, because I, I don't have an agent. I don't know anything about the business. But they, when they started looking for blind people, you know, there's not a lot of blind people who had agents, but most of them that they talked to knew who I was. They said, that's the guy you need if you're looking for, you know, rustic. You know, so that's how I got the job. So that's the look. That's your look, rustic. Rustic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because when I you said go- you're wearing the same clothes, I was thinking uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was just talking to my kids. And uh, <laughs> I grew up in the, uh, I went to school in high school in the 70s, graduated in 1980. And I said, I'm actually wearing the same exact clothes now that I was then. Flannel shirt, work boots, and jeans. So I guess it's rustic, but when a, wor- a look works for you, yeah. you stay with it. Roll I mean, it. look, uh, you know, it got me this great podcast. I haven't done any Super Bowl commercials yet, but yeah. I guess I just don't have the right agent. Yeah, you go. <laughs> stick with it. Yeah. All right. So maybe you uh, could talk to your guy. Have my people, you your people talk to my people. I'll do, it. I'll do it. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about your woodworking. But the first thing that when I when I when I met you here just a few minutes ago, uh, you were showing me some of the things you were working on downstairs in your shop. And um, and it's interesting to me that um, you were working on bending wood. You were putting down uh, like uh, templates or gussets, or whatever, so you can bend the wood around. We are building 
Bilbo the door for Bilbo Baggins house and Bilbo needs a new front door and Bilbo's front new front door is seven foot in diameter and is round uh, so it'll it'll be you know seven foot in diameter and then we're going to truncate or chop off the bottom four inches, which will give you a, a 34 inch threshold, which you need to have, and will still give you your six, eight clearance. So if you're building a round door, you have to have a round jam. And in my in my past lives, I have built a bunch of arch top windows and, and different things. So I absolutely know how to build, you know, rounded jams and we're using bendable plywood, but we took the, took the actual door itself and, um, and then put a spacer around the edge of the door that is the space between the jam and the door. And then we built some little L-shaped brackets that go down and screw to the, to the core of the door that isn't covered yet. And then we'll just take all those, so they stick up from the door and there's about 20 of them that go around. Then we'll just take our bendable plywood and we'll just run it right around the actual door. So it, it has to match. <laughs> so. <laughs> So one thing that's uh, that that fascinates me is I I, um, I have a hard time visualizing something when I'm working in three dimensional like I mean I, floors is one thing for me but when I'm so can, can maybe you can explain to me how you can see this in your mind's eye and how you can actually uh, you know do the turns and everything that you need to do with a piece of wood. So there's two very distinct kinds of of looking at things in the world. There is what I call where you build something and then, then, then there's reductive where you take stuff away. So if you, if you are a sculptor and you want to sculpt a swan out of a big, huge block of ice, you take this big block of ice and you take away everything that isn't swan, right? So take away everything you don't want. So therefore, when you start sculpting it, the very first thing you're going to start to see is the beak. You know, if it's got his, you know, head extended, you know, you so you can see the head. So you have to do that first, okay? If you're doing what I call building something, you start, you start with the body and you start applying all the things to it to get to where you want to be. And those are two totally different mindsets. And and people, all people fall into, at least in my observation, all people fall into one of those two categories. And for me, as a, as a furniture builder and a, and a construction guy and a guy who is building, you know, a bar or a back bar, you start off and you just start adding everything on to get what you want on the outside. When I started doing some wood turning and everything, I had a really hard time adjusting my thought to the wow. fact that I am taking this block of wood and I want to get a bowl out of it. I'm to get supposed to get something that isn't bowl. I, I, I'm really good at since the modern age has come along in my lifetime where we have computers and computer graphics and computer drawing and, and CNC, you know, computer design, those kinds of things, you can take and you can design something in a computer and then you can take your fancy little mouse and you can rotate that object and look at it from different angles and everything. I'm really blessed with the ability. I can do that in my head because I can't do it on the computer because I can't see the screen. So. Well, Wayne, Wayne and I can see the screen, and we still can't do it on the computer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, George, what I what I what I'm curious to know is how you're able to to measure. Obviously, you when you're measuring something, and you uh, we we use a, a tape measure. You don't have that objective. You were mentioning something about putting our our hands up like right. this. So here's here's 
hands in my hand next to your hand. Yeah. And in, in the Bible, it says that um, that he Noah used cubics to uh, to build the ark. So a cubic is from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger. Okay. Well, if you build one side of the ark and I build the other side of the ark, we are not going to have a problem. We're going to have a, we're gonna have a <laughs> crescent shape. It's yes. only going to go in a circle. Okay. So someone invented a universal method that everybody could measure with a ruler with numbers. And, and if you've ever built, been around the furniture business for a long time, you'll know that there's things as story sticks. Mm -hmm. And a story stick will tell you exactly how to build a piece of furniture and it has all the markings on it. So okay. it's, it's, it's a ruler of sorts, okay? okay. But we, we have progressed to modern day rulers. Yes. And my modern day ruler is this device here. It's a piece of threaded rod, okay. uh, 16 threads to the inner third rod, and it's inside a round tube, so it'll slide in and stuff. And out okay. of the round tube. And each one of those notches is a sixteenth. Each of an one inch. is a sixteenth, and then the, okay. right there, there's a little spring-loaded ball bearing that goes against the side of that rod that's okay. running there. So, if I want to measure something that is one and three sixteenths long, these are at one in, at half inch increments. So there's a half, okay. there's one inch, and then there's one sixteenth, two sixteenths, three sixteenths. So uh, yeah. from here to there, I have one and three sixteenths. So uh, I can be real accurate from that, and. One of the things that I tell people all the time is you, human hands, fingers, whatever, you pretty easily feel a human hair, the thickness of a human hair. And that's, you know, somewhere around, you know, it's less than 128th of an inch. Okay. You know, it's really small. Yeah. And uh, I think 4,000 to be precise. Okay. And, um, and, and you can, lots of times you can't see that. Okay, but if you run your hand, everybody knows if you run your hand across the surface of a laminated top or a glass top or the bathroom vanity, you always know that you always feel the hair that's right. on the counter or whatever. So your fingers are real accurate. So if you learn to uh, change a little bit of your of your mindset from looking at things, you know, reading the tape measure and using your finger using your fingers instead of your eyes or your fingers as your eyes. Okay then you can be really, really accurate. Hey, George, how long have you been doing woodworking? I've been at it about 50 years, roughly. Um, my grandfather uh, was a woodworker. My mother actually was a really good woodworker. So and when, when I was a young kid, whenever any woodworking needed to get done, uh, mom, you know, grabbed the hammer and the saw and, and started in on it. And then... Um, when I was a young kid, we, we lived on the edge of a farm and, and then as, as things go on farms, there's always something that needs to be done. And there's always a shortage of people to do things. So starting as a young kid, I bailed hay and milk cows and, and, um, and, and shoveled manure and, and all of those kinds of things, just like all the rest of my cousins did. And then I got interested in you know, motors and fixing balers and stock cars and motorcycles and all those kinds of things. Although I couldn't drive them, I certainly could make them go fast. Uh, <laughs> and then I got involved in bicycles and worked at a bicycle shop for quite a few years. Um, the first two years of my woodworking adventure, my uh, shop was in the basement of a commercial office building. And my deal with the guy who owned the, the, the office building is I couldn't make noise during the daytime. So from 10 o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon, 
for two years, I worked at the bicycle shop uh, fixing bicycles. And then at five o'clock, I would show up at my building and I paid my rent on my building uh, by being the janitor. So I would clean the bathrooms, vacuum the halls, wash all the windows, uh, take out the trash and all those kinds of fun things, shovel the snow in the wintertime and all that. So that's why I paid my rent for the first two years of my woodworking business. And then finally had enough money ahead, bought my own building and moved into that and went back to working, um, you know, still working, you know, 16 hour days, just that all the day was mine instead of somebody else. So you had to still, I mean, to be a woodworker, you had to be using routers, table saws, stuff like that. How, how'd you pull that off being blind? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if you, if you really stop and think about it, if you stop and think about a table saw, that's the best example to look at is that really the, there's a saw blade on a table saw. It spins, but it's really static. It can't go anywhere. It, it, unless you pick up the whole saw and move it somewhere. So that's the only way that it can move. The only moving components on a, on a table saw is you. Okay. So if you set your table saw up and you take your fancy little click rule and you set the distance between the fence and your, and your saw blade, and you set it at an inch and a quarter and you say, Hmm, how wide's my thumb? And I say, hmm, my thumb won't go between that saw blade and that fence. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use the push stick. But if you set it at two and a half inches, you can say, oh, if my hand's over against the fence, I can run my hand through there all day long and, and no problem whatsoever. So, and it's, it's you that's doing the moving, you know? So unless you have some catastrophic event where the, you know, the saw, you know, decides it's going to launch your piece of wood like a missile, uh, which happens every once in a while. You know, it, and um, it, it's, it's a pretty safe thing to do. It's same as running, you know, if you run stuff across the shaper, you know, you pick up a piece of wood, you slide it against the fence, you know, you slide it along, it, it runs against the cutter. If the, if you're, you know, cutting uh, styles and rails, you know, they're two and a half inches wide. If you keep your fingers on, you know, less than halfway across the board, you're perfectly safe. Uh, if they're smaller than that, then you better find another way to run them. Um, if you're, if you're doing raised panels, you've got a great big, huge panel, you know, so you're, you'd be a long ways away from the cutter. And if you, if you were a sensible woodworker and you're running raised panels, you run the cutter underneath so that the, A number one, you can get better chip pickup that way if you got good vacuum on your equipment. And the other thing is you're, you know, less likely, less likely, I say, to, to engage your fingers in the process. Well, Wayne's been talking an awful lot about the shop and your tools and and the tiny little things that you've made. You know, one thing I tell you, George, before Wayne leaves, I pat him down. You know, oh, okay. I give him a, <laughs> I give him a pat down. Okay, so he might he might run off with my 42-inch yeah, wide time savers. You know, he's a really good guy, but sometimes he's like a kid. You know, he just can't help himself. Kids don't, they, they don't do it to be me, you know. <laughs> But yeah, so Wayne I, is talking so much about your shop. How how do you navigate a shop, a wood shop, using you know, so many different tools? Like I was saying to Wayne, you know, you would think that a blind man's wood shop, everything would have its exact spot, and, and it's like everybody, every other wood shop I've ever been in. Well, I've actually been in a couple that that were just amazing. That people have way more time to spend work. They they must not do anything but work on their shop, you know. Um, 
but you know, it, I, I have general vicinities that I put things in. You know, I have I have a big tool bench that you know the tools and everything go on, and and things roughly get back to the same spot. I mean, the 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 shelf that's designated for sanding tools has sanding equipment. You know, the the shop the the spot that's designated for nailers. You know, I I do segregate them out for you know quarter crown, you know, crown staplers and straight nailers and, you know, and those kinds of things, framing nailers. I, I do, and I actually keep my, I keep my flooring nailer in a very special spot, someplace where I don't have to use it very often. <laughs> um, I, George, I don't know if Wayne has told you this, but uh, last year he won floor of the year. That's uh, what he was saying. Oh, well, I assumed he would have told you that. Yeah. He's a little bit of a perfectionist, so he he actually cue the music. You can hear the music now of the floor of the year music that we play for Wayne every time. But, uh, <laughs> right, he's, Wayne's about. quite the perfectionist. <laughs> are are you a perfectionist also? Um, I, I've been accused of being rather anal <laughs> about about what I do. I, I I will tell you that I, I there are many projects in this world that I'm absolutely sure I spent more time after they were built doing the final detailing and sanding and, and preparation for finish than I probably did spend building the piece. You know. mm. um, excuse me, Wayne, I'm yeah. gonna reach over here. Yeah. I'm gonna grab this. So I'm gonna show you something here that that um has probably 50 hours in it and it's just a log and uh but wayne will attest for the fact if you pet this thing it is absolutely like petting satin and this it's, doesn't even have any finish on it yet. that's just sanding it is glass that's just sanding. that's just sanding. Can I turn it towards the, absolutely uh, a little bit? oh yeah yeah so this is this is a an art show that opens june, june 1st here in town and this is one of the pieces the abstract the kind of organic pieces that I'm going to put in the show. What, what did you sand that to? Um, Two thousand. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it's an incredibly interesting piece of wood, and you know, how do you how do you bring bring its beauty out for people to you know to enjoy? And and one of the things. I do like spending a lot of time making them feel really wonderful. And that piece there, especially the, the textures and the, the difference between the places where there is still bark on it and then the pieces that have been polished out to the max is the, 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 the sensation of touching it is, is an experience into itself. Uh, most of our listeners are wood floor installers. Let's, let's hear the story about some of your wood floors that you've done. Um, oh, I've, like, I guess the biggest, biggest wood floor I've ever put down myself was a white oak floor that was 4,500 square feet. It did take me a couple days. <laughs> so that's a lot of floor. It just seems like it takes forever. Um, there's, there's a, in, in this building here, there's a little bit of yellow pine floor. And eventually there's gonna be in my gallery space, there'll be about 1,500 square feet, 1,800 square feet of more of yellow pine flooring. 
Um, but, you know, I was in the contracting business and the millwork business. So um, we've, you know, I've put down some of that ugly plastic laminate, you know, snap together stuff. I've put down some pretty cool uh, herringbone designs. Um, I, I did some uh, restoration work in an old church where it was a round church and then the sanctuary area of the church was round as well. And it was a smaller round inside the great big round pushed off to one side. So along the backside of that round, there was a hallway and off the backside of that hallway was a whole bunch of classrooms and different things. And all of the flooring in every one of those rooms sunbursted out from the center of the doorway into the corners of the weird pie shaped rooms. And um, there was, was a fire in the building and they, and we worked in some of the areas where water damaged and some areas that were fire damaged and everything. And it was quite the experience because, you know, knowing that, you know, the church was built in the, you know, 1880s, 1890s, and you know that the guys that did those did it 100% with hand tools, you know, so they made each one of those pie shaped pieces, you know, and machined the groove and, you know, and the tongue on them with hand planes, and it was all hard maple. I mean, I just can't imagine how much time they spent sharpening tools, because <laughs> that's how they do a good job. So. I, I, I went to a Japanese a uh, demo one time, George uh, Takamutsi, I think that's how he's out in Pennsylvania. I think I said his name right. And um, he had some you know, some Japanese uh, master woodworkers in from Japan demonstrating some Japanese joinery. And uh, they had this old master guy. He would he would make about three or four passes with the hand plane and he would hand it to the apprentice guy and he'd go take it and sharpen it and, and hand him another plane at the same time. He'd make three or four passes of that one and hand it back, you know? And 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 he was he was probably in his late 70s, right? And the apprentice guy was in his 50s, the guy that was still sharpening it. <laughs> when, when do you get him a When the guy dies, <laughs> that's all you get to move up. So there's still hope for you, Wayne. You could be a yeah. sharpener. You could be the sharpen guy. I would like to ask you about the uh, triangular yeah. boxes um, that you make for the American flag for uh, veterans and uh, first responders, police and everything for their funeral flag. Okay, I started making those when I was in Hickory, North Carolina. Um, I moved from Northern Michigan. Uh, I ran my mill workshop in Traverse City, Michigan for nine years. I just built onto my building and built a big fancy new finishing room. And then the economy in the 1983 just stopped. Interest rates went to 20%. I just built onto my building. I lost the whole mess. I went broke and had to start over again. So I went to North Carolina, went to Canava Valley College for a degree in furniture production management. And um, so after I'd been working in the furniture business down there for a while, as all really good ideas and really good things do, your mom humbles you into doing things. So <laughs> my mom had a place in Florida and she's from Northern Michigan. So every year she would make her pilgrimage from Northern Michigan to Florida and then from Florida back to Northern Michigan. So she stopped to see her, her favorite son, my brother says I am anyway. <laughs> and um, so, and my father's internment flag was laying on my coffee table 
uh, when she stopped and she says, I can't believe it. You've been in the woodworking business your whole life and you haven't made a nice box to put your father's flag in. Yeah. Only only has how a mother can say mm -hmm. that, you know, to make you feel like you are <laughs> not quite a quarter of an inch tall, you know. So the, very, the, the dutiful son that I am, the next morning I get up bright and early and I go out to my shop in the garage and I make this pretty little triangular box to put my father's internment flag in and I bring it in and I show it to her. She goes, oh my God, that's beautiful. You're such a good boy. And I thought, oh, I made mom happy. I, my, my life is complete. You know, so the, the very next day, two friends of mine stop and come walking in my house. And, and they, the one guy looks over and he says, is that a box for a, for a veteran's internment flag? And I said, yeah. He goes, my brother owns a funeral home uh, over in Morganton. And he says, he just asked me last week if he knew someone that could make some boxes, presentation boxes for flags. They had some uh, two brothers uh, from Morganton who had been in Vietnam, who were both killed at the same time uh, and remains had been missing. They'd found them and they were coming back home and they were going to have a funeral and everything for them. And they wanted boxes, you know, for display boxes for the flags. So he said, can you make some more? And I said, well, absolutely. So he says, well, let's go show them to my, to my, you know, to my bro brother or brother-in-law, one or the other. So we jump in the car and go up there and we walk in the door and the guy says, that's what I want right there. He says, I need six of them. And I says, okay. <laughs> and I says, and I said, I didn't say how much there. And he says, it doesn't matter. This is a good business. Yeah, it's a great business. So I, I, you know, went and made him his his boxes that he needed, and I made some extra ones, and and then I started doing a little bit of research and looking at the Veterans Administration. And in the next, you know, ten or fifteen years, this was in the in the mid 1980s. You know, there was going to be a million vets that were going to pass away because that's the age they were. Yeah. You know, and so I said, this is a viable business. So. I had a friend who was a photographer who owed me money. Uh, I had uh, done some work for him and he hadn't quite paid it all off yet. So I went to him and said, will you do some photography for me? And he, he did. So then I went to the local printer and I walked in. I says, I really don't have any money. Do you need any woodworking done? I need these brochures printed. So I, I actually swapped the printing of my brochures for some woodworking. And then I just started mailing out to the funeral homes. Um, I got a... a I picked up a copy of the National Funeral Home Magazine and just started, you know, figuring out who was where and what. And then I started going to the National Funeral Directors shows where they have their trade shows every year and set up my booth and started selling them. And uh, as, as luck would have it, I landed uh, a contract with the U.S. Army and with the Air Force. I didn't have enough money to produce the product. Um, I mean, as all of you know, being in business and everything, that cash is king. You know, you can have all the business in the world that you want and, and even have a decent profit, but if you don't have cash flow, you can't make it happen. And I didn't have any cash. So I was looking for an investor and uh, found a guy who was really, really excited about everything. Came right down to the last day that we were going to finalize the whole thing. And he comes in the meeting and says, No, I decided I don't want to invest in your company. I don't want to invest. And, I, and my heart just stopped. He said, I'll buy it from you. How much you want for it? And he's like, really put me on the spot. How much you want for it? You know, you want, right now he wants an answer, you know? So I just threw this stupid figure out on the, out on the counter, you know? And he said, okay, we can do that. 
and, and I, I sold oh, damn. I owned my flag case business for three years and three days. And when I sold it to him, I had 2,500 accounts, coast to coast. So, I mean, the guy bought, and now it's sold over. He has, it's been quite a few years ago, he announced he sold this millionth flag case, you know. Wow. I did get royalty. I did happen to have a copyright on the design, a design copyright on it. So I did get royalties. My problem was I should have asked for a smaller royalty for a longer period of time because I got a, a nice royalty for a short period of time. The the boxes that you made, did you put, uh, you sign them or put something on there that we could tell it was you? Um, well, they, they, they would have um, GM Wurzel on them on the original ones and then they say elk products on it is what they said after the afterwards um okay. mine had a, a, a casting on the front that was either an army navy or marine insignia and then a metal plate um and because um, we have one for my brother-in-laws i want to i want to see yeah. if maybe it was what, one of yours what year i mean that would tell um, you um he died in uh, 89. Boy, it might be. I mean, that's that's right when I was doing it. That, that's what I was thinking. It might be. Yeah. Uh... Okay, so you, okay, you got one. The very first one that was ever made. Wow. And it, it has suffered dramatically. It went from sunny Florida and 90 degree, 90% humidity into storage in northern Michigan in the middle of the winter and it did not fare well. But there's there's what they looked like originally. Is that yep, yep, yep. Looks, yep. and this it. this casting up here could have been Army or Navy or Marines or wow. or the Great Seal, which is what this one is. Very cool. That's the very first one. This is the very first one. Oh I I, I have built I built something uh a one third scale model of a Steinway D grand piano for Stevie Wonder. And uh I happen to be fortunate enough that uh, he went to my high school, so I've known him for a long time. And when they were looking for someone to do a uh, outstanding achievement award from the state of Michigan, they contracted me to build this this one third scale model of the Steinway Dream Grand Piano Form. And we were we were I ran into Stevie about four years ago, five years ago at a function in in California. And uh, we were talking and I, I was so impressed that he remembered who I was because I was, you know, I was a little kid when he was at school. He was like three years older than me. Yeah. And, and then he remembered, you know, that I had made the, the thing for the, and he said it's still in his penthouse in uh, New York City. So that made me feel good that it didn't get relegated mm -hmm. to, the, to the trash heap somewhere. That's awesome. I, I was telling him that you know he really gives blind people a bad name because everybody thinks <laughs> blind people should be able to sing. You know, I, I can't I can't carry a tune in a pickup truck. I mean, it just can't be done. Or um, what's the name? Uh, Ronnie Millsap. Ronnie Millsap. Across the, the the hill there. Um, uh, another great singer. You know, Ronnie. I, I think I saw Ronnie's very last concert. He did a concert just six months ago, nine months ago, over in um, Bristol, at the, at the Paramount over there in Bristol. And I think that was the last concert that he, he was having troubles. Mm. He, it was really sad. And I, I'm mm. so glad I went because I, I've, I've bumped into Ronnie a couple different times in my life and, and, and talked to him and different things. And one of my best Ronnie Millsap stories that I absolutely love is when Ronnie was first getting started in the 
in the music business. He he signed up with a you know promoter doing what's called the Chitlin Circuit, and uh, it was North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama. You know, you go around all the little towns and all the little these guys had regular routes and. And Ronnie says that his only thing was it had to be wherever the Greyhound bus went, you know, wherever the bus went. But Ronnie says, I thought I was really getting somewhere in the music business. He says, all of a sudden people would start asking for me to come back. He thought, I thought, they love my music. And Ronnie can't stand playing an out-of-tune piano. So he always carried his piano tune and stuff with him. So he says, he was in one of these little bars one time and he came in and they go, the piano tuner's here, <laughs> not the singer's here, but the piano tuner's here. And Ronnie says, I figured out that they really didn't care a whole lot about my singing. They wanted their piano tune cheap. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, let's talk a little bit about your documentary, um, so Marie's Mary Journey. Mary's journey was a. I tell you, if you're gonna, if you watch that, you better buy a box of Kleenexes because it will, it will make you cry. Um, Keith Famey, the uh, the guy who put that whole film together and everything, he's a he's a long term friend of mine, and um, we had done a we had done a documentary film um, in Michigan all about blind people in Michigan and all the different jobs and everything that blind people had and everything, so. When he got involved with doing Mary's Journey, one of the things that Mary was, her favorite book was called, a book called Paddle to the Sea. And Paddle to the Sea was a, a kid's book that was written in the 1940s, late 19, mid 1940s. And it's a story about a little American Indian boy who lives up on the North shore of Lake Superior. And he carves a little, a little wooden canoe with a little, a little wooden Indian in it. And, um, he takes it down and he places it on the on the snow on the edge of the stream in the in the spring of the year. And he writes on the bottom of the little canoe. It says, "My name is Paddle. Please help me. I want to get to the sea." Because anybody who grew up on the Great Lakes knows that no matter which Great Lake you're in, if you go downstream from wherever you are, you end up going up the St. Lawrence Seaway and you end up up in the ocean. So the the story is the the journey of the little of the little boat making its way from Lake Superior all the way out through all the Great Lakes out to the ocean. And that was Mary's favorite book when she was growing up. She loved that book. And it was on her bucket list to do as an adult. And when she figured out that she was only going to live, you know, a relatively short period of time, she her cancer was going to, was going to kill her. She knew that. She asked Keith Famey, she says, can you build a boat to put my ashes in so that it can make the journey that Paddle made. And and he goes, yeah, and I know just the guy to build the boat. So Keith calls me up and says, you want to build a, you know, a sailboat? And I said, I never built a sailboat before. But sure, I'll build you a sailboat. What's it have to do? And he says, well, it's got to go from Lake Michigan out to the Atlantic Ocean. I said, ah, piece of cake. As long as it doesn't go over Niagara Falls, we're all, we're all set. Just in case you want to know, if you send a little boat over Niagara Falls, it's going to cost you $10,000. So don't do it. <laughs> Um, the, the little boats patterned after a laser sailboat, which I used to sail when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up on Lake Michigan uh, and small lakes in northern Michigan, and I used to sail all the time and sailed a lot of lasers and a lot of lightning sailboats. And, and so that was the that was the design that was in my head. So, and I was really happy the very very first time we ever put it in the water. 
you know, I was figuring I was going to have to go, you know, move some weights around in it and adjust some ballast and that hit sailed perfect. It was, oh, I was so man. happy. And we, we, you know, took some um, artistic uh, license with the design a little bit. Instead of putting a, a short, rather deep keel on it, put a really long keel on it. So you really did encourage it to sail straight, you know, so, because, when you're when you have a regular sailboat and you want to sail it around, you want to make it easy to steer. And I figured we didn't want it. We wanted this thing to just go, you know, one foot. And it was really cool. It would you put it on you put it on a reach and it'd go down until it it ran out and it it'd uh, it'd jibe and it sail would go to the other side and it would go on another reach. It, it we'd run downwind. I mean, like really well once we figured out what length to make the make the uh, the trail traveler on the on the on the sail. And it, it, you know, it made the journey, but it, if you watch the movie, you can see it's with a lot of help from a lot of friends, trains, planes, and automobiles that they rode on some motorcycles that rode on some other people's boats It made a little, a little ride on a train It made a ride in a little airplane, but it made it all the way to the Atlantic ocean. And they, and they dumped her ashes in the Atlantic ocean. It was it's really cool. It's a great story. Where could they find that? Is that on like Netflix or something? It's on, um, the video, the pay-per-view video service, video, I think is how you say it. Okay. And uh, so it's pretty easy to find. If you if you Google it, you know, it pops up. Okay, there's one, there's a quote that you you uh, you have that I, I really like. And so I don't know if you're going to say this or not, Rob, but so anyone I'm not get it in there. Uh, never allow someone who doesn't have to pay the consequences dictate the consequences of your life. That's right. I think that's a great quote. And don't ever take advice from somebody who has no stake in the game. Mm -hmm. If someone tells you, you know, and, and, and this is this has a lot to do with um, people with disabilities of all kinds. You will get do-gooder people who think that they know more about you and what is good for you than you yourself may know. Mm -hmm. And if I ask somebody to give me advice on what they think I should do for a profession, I would think that there's very few normally cited, you know, well-meaning people who would think that I ought to go out and become a carpenter. I mean, that just isn't one of the things that they would suggest that I do. And it, it has served me really, really well. And I, I try to tell people, all the young blind people all the time or disabled people all the time, is find what your passion is and follow your passion. Don't let someone else dictate to you, you know, based on what their perception of your skills and talents are. Yeah, that, that's great advice in, in all cases in life. And um, so, I, I, like I said, I, when I when I came across your name, I thought this is, uh, and then I saw your woodworking pieces, and uh, I told you I'm bringing my wife back. Oh, good. Because, you know, she makes all... she got a charge card? Yeah, she does. Oh, good. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Since she makes all the decisions in our house on what we buy, I, yeah. you know, I'm just there. <laughs> um so um and we'll put a link to your uh to your website so other people can see your two years ago when when COVID came along we were sharing who isn't here today but we were sitting around here um trying to figure out what we're gonna do we hadn't seen a single soul in our little gallery in 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 the two months that one single person stuck their head in the door in two months sharon's been an antique dealer for uh her most of her the second half of her adult life anyway. She started off in the in the music business. 
But um, she um, she says, I have this old wooden business. We live in the South now. Maybe we should make these because everybody makes biscuits. So she went and dug it out of the box and handed it to me and says, can you make one of these? And I took a look at it. And she said, oh, I can make one of those. And I went downstairs and I you know, knocked one out, brought it up. She says, oh, my God, that's so much prettier than the one that we had to use for the model. So, so we took we put it up on the Facebook page. And within like three days, 30 people wanted one. And I thought, that's really cool. That was quick and easy, you know. <laughs> and then we, I made the, I made the thirty, and we lined them all up on a, like a little set of bleachers, and took another picture of all of these, and we said, okay, they're all ready to go. We'll start shipping them out. Body by. Someone took that picture and posted it on the White Lily flower page. That picture. Yeah. So by the end of the next week, we had another, we had another fifty sold. So. I was in the in the biscuit cutting. I never considered myself a production wood burner. I am now. <laughs> Found your niche. I did. You know, and it's it's um uh, made over a thousand of them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, the ice cream the ice cream scoopers are. Oh yeah, we've made a lot of those. Holy too. smoke, Rob! Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, Rob, I'll tell you what. I'll get you one because I'm getting one for myself. <laughs> you won't believe how heavy this is and how it's immaculate. So. Uh, Good stuff. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. I have another project that is, I haven't got the contract finished up for it, but we're going to build some reproductions of Helen Keller's desk that she mm. used to use. Um, the sad story of that is I don't have her desk because her house burned down in 1947 oh. and it was lost. As, as things will go, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you get a blind squirrel finds an acorn now and then. And uh, we, we had a picture of Helen's desk and we took it to the, uh, the big arts and crafts show down at the Grove Park Inn that they have every year, the big arts okay. and crafts show. And we started showing the picture around and we said, you know, who made this, who made this, who made this? And, you know, guys start digging through catalogs and start looking at it. And, and they decided it was an L and JG Stickley piece. And um, so then um, we went downstairs and as luck would have it, we start looking around at the show and lo and behold, here is the L and JG Stickley wow. library desk table wow. that wow. exactly like Helen Keller sitting at. I mean, he, guys, we called the guys back that we talked to earlier. They've been looking at the picture. They came down with catalogs you know, magnifying glasses and measuring tapes. And we sat down and pulling the drawers out and looking at the hardware and mm -hmm. comparing this and comparing. And we're pretty sure we have the exact same model of the desk that, that Helen Keller has in the photo. So we're doing reproductions of that. And um, we were hoping to get it. I was hoping to get the whole thing up off the ground yet this summer, but it looks like it's going to be by fall when it starts starts going. But that, I'm really excited about that project. I want to build a hundred of them. That's that's the goal. And if you've ever looked at stickly pieces, they're they're pretty they're kind of pricey. They're quarter saw and oak stuff. So they'll sell for about five thousand dollars each. Yeah. And then parcel part of the proceeds, all of the proceeds from it will go to back to the American Foundation for the Blind to um, money back into a fund for people that uh, want to do non-traditional craft kinds of things rather than going to college. People who want to be a potter or uh, a gardener or a woodworker or 
a weaver or whatever. We want to get some money back in there so people can pursue nice. the things they want to pursue. Very cool. Um, so we didn't. We we're going to wrap up. We didn't get to everything. I want. I didn't want. We didn't even get to your skiing trip, five hundred miles across Finland. Norway, uh, Norway, Finland, and Sweden. Really? Yeah. Started <laughs> off on the Kola Peninsula in Russia, uh, skied all the way across Norway, Finland, and Sweden uh, through an area that is called Lapland. It's where the Sami people live. Uh, we were part of the part of the the trip was above the Arctic Circle. Uh, the coldest day was only fifty-seven below zero. The warmest day was the last day of the trip. It hit 36. <laughs> Just to keep you coming back for more. Is there, George, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to touch on or something we missed or that you'd like to leave with uh, everybody before we go? Um, yeah, actually, if we could put something in there, you know, as you know, there are people out there in the in the world who are, you know, faced with, you know, macular degeneration or some eye degenerative disease through through that or through diabetes, which is the biggest cause of blindness there is. And so many people I've met in my life who, you know, think because they're losing their vision that they're no longer going to be able to pursue their uh, their passion, their 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 favorite uh, pastime or whatever. And and I teach people who've become newly blind. I actually mm -hmm. teach sighted people even who want to learn how to be woodworkers. Um, and so if you, if you have people who are interested in wanting to learn or uh, I tell people all the time, if you spent you know, 30 years, 40 years as a woodworker and now you've become blind, it's easy to teach you to do something as a blind person. It's really hard to give to inject 30 or 40 years of knowledge into someone's head. So All that stuff you have in there is still in there. You just need a way to measure. And if I can show you how to measure, you know, you can get right back at building that stuff. That's, you know, is, is, I have an aunt who is just now uh, having issues with her eyes and she's losing her, her sight. And, yep. and uh, it's, it's scary to her and what yep. have you. So I will 100% have her listen to the podcast. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's been, it's just been fantastic talking. To you. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, you got to see the commercial because you'll laugh so hard when you see the commercial. You you know you've done something right in in the in the movie business or that business. If someone makes a parody of, of whatever you've done, there is a parody of the Subaru ad. You need to you need to Google. Yes, the parody is hysterical. It is. It's fantastic. It is awesome. Yes, <laughs> the commercial was great, but the. The parody is hilarious. It is. I, I laughed so hard. I mean, I laughed so hard. Yep. Well, um, you know, we're, we usually end the podcast to say this has been another episode, and this has, but uh, really it's been an honor to talk to George today, and I learned something every day, and uh, coming down and seeing his shop, I, like I said, I, I, I've got to bring my wife back because uh, there's some stuff there I, I damn sure want to pick up. And uh, we'll lift a link to, to his, his work and, and uh, his Facebook information and uh, give it a look. You want to see the really cool woodworking pieces, uh, 50 years of experience behind all this stuff, uh, beautifully finished. I mean, uh, so there you go. Check it out. And uh, this has been another episode of On the Floor with Wayne and Rob. Please stay tuned for another episode. <laughs>